0: Let's look in Acts chapter 12 together. I would encourage you to have your Bibles open. If you have a way to take notes, that would be great. Not because I'm saying it, but because this is God's word that we're looking at this morning. Um, So I want to talk to you about the boiler room. Okay, now that will come back into play a little bit later. Um, I'll go back to what Trevi was saying in his testimony a few few nights ago. You either look inward inward. Outward or upward? And in this passage, we see there could have been a temptation for the church to do either of the first two. But they didn't do either of the first two. They did the last one. They looked upward. Now, there's a famous basketball player, NBA basketball player. Now, those of you who know me know that I'm very passionate about basketball. I love it. I play it. This is my last year of playing, so you can send me some flowers at the end of the season and all that. Uh, But Bill Russell is one of the most famous NBA players of all time. He won 11 championships, which is just unheard of. And uh, he said something that I thought was very, very interesting. I was watching a documentary of his not long ago. And it said, in basketball, there is enough hate to start a war. And I would say that this applies to all sports. In basketball, there's enough hate to start a war and enough joy to prevent it. No, is he not speaking of the human condition? Is he not speaking of how temperamental we are as human beings, as broken as we are? In one moment there can be sheer elation, and the next moment you want to tear the person's head off next to you. Like even the football fans, the, you know, in in the stadiums this day and time, you know, they they've got to put stewards in between the the, the traveling fans and the home fans and all that, because one of them gets a hold of one another's going to start a riot, isn't it? Hatred, joy, how, how do we keep all of this bottled in? How do we actually use the God-given emotions that we have? You know, we, we were made with emotions. Sometimes we say emotions are, 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 are bad. We let on like emotions are bad, but emotions are not bad. Emotions are God-given. God is a, a, a being who is intellect, emotion, and will. He has all three of those things. He's an emotional being, and He created us in His likeness, in His image. We are emotional beings. We have intellect, emotion, and we have will. Let me just say this. Emotion is not a bad thing when it's tempered in the right way. Even in this service here, I will promise you, raise your hands and praise to God. I will not rebuke you. Emotion is a beautiful thing. I've, I've seen people raise their hands and praise to God, and I've seen people just stand with tears streaming down their face. Emotion is not a bad thing in the right context. If you allow emotion to motivate you, however, that's when emotion is a bad thing. That's when it becomes a tool for evil rather than a tool for good. Now, not to mention that none of us have the capability of producing joy in and of ourselves. We can be happy, can't we? But joy, that's a fruit of the Spirit. That's something that comes uh, from God. And in this passage, we see the church dealing with all different types of emotions. We see the church being encountered with things that are outward, inward, upward, and yielding to the upward. But let's, let's start with this. Number one, the persecution of the church in verses one to four. Let's start in verse one. Now, about that time, Herod, the king, stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Now, this is Herod Agrippa I. If any of you are history buffs, he's the grandson of Herod the great who tried to put Christ to death as a baby, right? Um, early on, he had fallen out with the emperor Tiberius and had even spent some time, um, imprisoned because he in, tried to embezzle money and things like that. No, never mind. But, but after Tiberius' death, uh, he was released and made a ruler of the region where Judea and Samaria was. And because he'd fallen out with many in Rome, Herod was attempting to make friends with the Jews because he could no longer trust people in Rome. Does that make sense? So now, rather than trying to befriend people in Rome again, they've actually sent him away and given him this little area that nobody else wanted in Judea and Samaria. And now he's forced to make friends with the Jews. And he's trying to impress them. So persecuting Christians was his way in with the Jews. And this is actually the fifth persecution that has come to the church thus far in Acts. So if you're reading through the book of Acts, you're studying through the book of Acts like we are, and you've not noticed the theme of persecution, um, then you've not been reading carefully. This is the fifth persecution. In chapter 4, Peter and John were arrested, beaten, and forbidden from preaching in Jesus' name. But they carried on, didn't they? In chapter 5, the high priest imprisoned the disciples for teaching in the temple. But they kept preaching, didn't they? In chapter 6 and 7, Stephen, we have the account of Stephen being captured and, and stoned for preaching Christ. But the church kept on preaching Christ, didn't they? In chapter 8, Saul ordered the imprisonment and death of the followers of the way. That's the name of Christians in that day and time. And, and hauling people off to prison and putting people to death. But the church scattered and preached the gospel. Chapter 12, we have the fifth persecution here. Herod attacks the church, setting his sights on the apostles. And what I want you to see in this passage is A, persecution is inevitable for followers of Christ, but B, the unstoppable mission of Jesus Christ marches on in spite of persecution. Notice verse 2. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Now, in the 20th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, I'd like you to turn there with me, please. Hold your place in Acts 12. We're coming back. James' mother um, came to Christ, apparently prompted by her son, or sons, and asked Jesus if her sons could sit on uh, the right and left hand in the kingdom. You know, they wanted a place of prestige and authority, didn't they? And here is his answer in Matthew chapter 20, verse number 22. We'll read verse 23 as well. But Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? What's He talking about? Remember in the garden? He says, Father, if it be possible, let this bitter cup pass from me. He's talking about the crosses, and He's talking about the immense suffering of the atonement. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm about to be baptized And he's talking about suffering and death, is he not? They said to him, unaware of what he's actually talking about, we are. Of course, we can drink that royal chalice in the kingdom, can't we? Of course, we can be baptized just as you were baptized by John. They didn't get what he was saying. He was saying, if you follow me, there is suffering and even death. Verse 23. Verse 23. So he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my father. Now, here's, here's the point. Jesus was speaking about the persecution and martyrdom that would befall all 12 of the apostles in some variable. All 12 of the apostles, both history and tradition tell us that all of them except for the Apostle John were martyred, even though you could say that John was martyred because he died in exile on the Isle of Patmos, being boiled in oil. So you could say that John was martyred as well, though he did live a long life, comparatively speaking. But James is the first Apostle to die. The first of many. And notice the horrific manner in which he was killed. Killed with the sword. Now, he was not merely thrust through with the sword. James was beheaded for following Christ. According to the Talmud and Sanhedrin, these man-made Jewish books, not the Bible, uh, this type of death was reserved for those who had deceived the people, namely, teachers of false gods. So again, Herod, the desperate politician, is putting James to death to save face with the unbelieving Jews and is having him beheaded to really get in well with them. Now, this is a really sad moment. James is one of my favorite apostles in the gospel records. James was the brother of John, the one that is referred to as beloved of the Lord. Uh, He was part of that inner circle of Christ who was there in the really, really big moments. For example, are you familiar with the transfiguration of Christ on the mountain? James was there for that. James was there in the garden when Jesus was praying and kept uh, uh, um, behesting them to pray with him over and over, and they kept falling asleep. I probably done the same. But James was there the whole time. He's one of my favorite characters. One of my favorite people in the history of the church. But James is beheaded for the gospel. Look at verse 3. And because he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Not Peter. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. I'm sure the church stuttered whenever Peter was arrested. Can you imagine? How bewildering that must have been for them. James had just been mercilessly put to death before the feast, and now they'd arrested Peter with the intent to do exactly the same thing. All of the people, they probably thought of all the people, not Peter, not him. He was the lead apostle. He was the one whom Jesus said that the apostles were given to the kings, the keys of the kingdom, talking about their, their writings and their spreading of the gospel. He was the one whom preached on Pentecost with thousands of people coming to Christ. He was the one who in the face of persecution said we ought to obey God rather than man. He was the one in the previous chapters who led the first Gentile household to Jesus. By God's grace, Peter was as influential as you could get in the early church. Not Peter, right? That must have caused a shudder and a shiver to come throughout the church. Verse 4. So when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to the four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Now, Herod didn't want any bloodshed or death during this time. Very similar to when they were trying to keep from Jesus to death during the Passover, right? Um, it was meant to be a joyous season for Israel. It was the season of the feasts. And, and without getting into all the feasts, if Herod was intending to keep Peter in prison until after Passover, then it would have been, he would have been there for weeks, riding away in the, in the jail cell. By keeping Peter in prison, he was intending to save even more face with the Jews so they could have a nice, uh, joyous Passover time. Nice feasts. But four soldiers, it says, were assigned to Peter. Now that's significant because they rotated in twos. Okay, let me just explain. So 24-7, there were two soldiers literally chained to Peter in his cell. Two of those soldiers were chained to him And whenever they rotated, those two soldiers went out and watched guard outside of the cell door while the other two came in and chained themselves to Peter. Now, Peter's imprisonment and his chains were as binding as humanly possible. And this is a great segue for us to go to point number two. Not just the persecution of the church, but we see the power of God in verses 5 to 11. Look at verse 5. Peter was was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. Let me just say that verse number 5 is the key to the whole passage. And we're going to come back to it at the end for emphasis sake because it comes into play a little bit later as well. But prayer was made. In the midst of all of this persecution, Remember, you can look inward, you can look outward, or you can look upward. And What's the church doing? Looking upward. Look at verse 6. And when Herod was about to bring him out that night, Peter was sleeping. Sleeping. He's in prison, chained to two other paid professional killers. In a jail cell that was likely cold, rat infested, with two other soldiers just outside of the jail cell, just in case he got out. And he's sleeping. And this is reminiscent of, of Paul and Silas later in the cell on death row singing hymns to one another. He's in the midst of this trial. And I'll tell you the reason that Peter was at peace in the midst of the trial is because he wasn't looking inward. He wasn't looking outward. He was looking upward. Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers. Nice little sandwich there. And the guards before the door were kept, were keeping the prison. Verse seven, behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him and a light shone in the prison. And you're thinking, remember the, 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 the light that knocked Saul off his animal and his conversion? Well, it didn't wake up Peter. Peter's a really deep sleeper, apparently. Can I have a story? All right, just to give you an idea about deep sleeping. I'm dead to the world. And one night, Amanda had thought uh, that someone was breaking into our house and to wake me up to be the protector I'm supposed to be, right? Well, me, I played basketball the previous night, so my legs are all sore. I'm completely out of my mind, and I stumble down the stairs. And if there was anyone down there at the bottom of the stairs by the time I got at the bottom, they would have just absolutely slaughtered me. <laughs> no clue. So Amanda said, never mind, I'll go and see so she went past me and, and, and went and checked. But just deep, deep in sleep. Now the last three hours is a different, different story altogether. But those first three hours, I'm just in deep sleep. And Peter's in deep sleep, and this bright light shines in the prison. You'd think that would wake him up. But notice the angel what does this angel of the Lord do? He starts poking Peter. He starts smacking him. Bro, wake up! Come on. I shone a light, I turned the lights on. Now I gotta poke you? And he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. And notice, as soon as the angel said this, what happened? His chains fell off his hands. Now Peter might be thinking at that moment, hang on a minute. What are these soldiers going to think when they wake up and see me unbound? And what if the soldiers outside of the cell door wake up and see me unbound? Verse 8. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself, get get dressed, you've been sleeping, and tie on your sandals. We're going somewhere. And so Peter did. He did. And he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. Now I told you that Peter is a deep sleeper, right? Read verse number 9. So he went out and followed him and did not know that what was done by the angel was real. He's still like, half out of it. He's not fully awake. His mind is still in sleep mode. Is this a dream or is this actually happening? I know I really want to be out of this prison, but it seems so unlikely that, that this could actually happen. And he thinks maybe he's dreaming. He thought it was a vision. Verse 10, when they were past the first and second guard posts, now they've gone past somehow, they not only got out of the cell, not only sneaked past those guards that were right outside of the cell door, but the whole squadron of soldiers, they've somehow got past without waking them up. And they came to the iron gates that lead to the city. So now they're at the gates outside of the prison walls and they're going through, which opened to them of its own accord. They're walking up. It's still almost like a dream to him in some ways but then he comes to the gate and the gate just opens up. This all looks so real and it's starting to piece together for him that this is a very real situation. Verse 11, And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent His angel and delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. You know what these verses tell us? about persecution, the persecution of God's people, it is a foolish thing to try to fight against the sovereign God. It's a foolish thing to try to fight against the sovereign God. We've been saying this over and over through our series through Acts um, from the very first persecution that came. We mentioned this a moment ago. They were brought before the council. They were beaten, told not to preach in the name of Jesus anymore. And as a result of that, they went away glorifying God and rejoicing that they were able to suffer like Jesus did. And it actually uh, prompted their witness a bit more than before. So now they're telling people about Jesus even more after they've been forbidden to preach in Jesus' name. In chapter 8, as we saw, Saul tried to extinguish the flames of Christianity, but all he did was fan the flames. Because at that point, the, the gospel was still only in Jerusalem. But the commandment was Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost. So at every point, at every point, Christ rejecting humanity has tried to extinguish the flames, but they've only ended up finding the flames. And this is no different. Remember I mentioned earlier where Herod was uh, over? Judea and Samaria. I want you to think about the Great Commission. Be witnesses of me in Jerusalem. Judea. Samaria and the outermost. you see that? At every point that Satan tries to stop the mission of Christ, time and time again, the sovereign hand of God overpowers every effort against the gospel. And this is no exception to the rule. He came to himself and he said, Now I know for certain that God has sent his angel and delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. I hate to be going back to uh, illustrations that we've used before, but it's like light and darkness, isn't it? Uh, you turn the lights off, the darkness is there. But did the darkness make the light go away? Darkness is the absence of light. You flick the lights on, the lights make the darkness go away. So it is with evil and good. So it is with Christ and Satan. So it is with the Gospel and those who don't know it. Light will always be greater than darkness. We come to the third point. The prayers of the church. And I think this is the heart of the whole passage. The prayers of the church. Look in verse number 5. We're going to backtrack there and then we'll come forward again to verse 12. But it says, Peter was therefore kept in prison. And while Peter was in prison, what was the church doing? But constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. Constant prayer for him by the church. Look at verse 12. So when he had considered this, that God had delivered him, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. I love this. It's the first place that Peter thought to go. The First place he thought to go was 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 where the prayer meeting was taking place, where he knew that they would be, where the brethren were, where the fellowship was. Verse thirteen, and as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. Now I feel Rhoda. I would hate to be in her shoes because I hate it when someone when I'm telling. Someone doesn't believe me, don't you just hate it? And look at verse number fourteen. When she real when she recognized Peter's voice, and she would have known Peter's voice, very prominent apostle, wasn't he? When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her gladness, she didn't open the gate. She's just excited. Peter's here. But she ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. Do you ever get so excited about something good that you forget to do what you're supposed to do? And that's what Rhoda did. She was so excited Peter was there. Rather than opening the gate, mind you, Peter's just escaped by the hand of the Lord and they're probably looking for him and he's standing on the outside of the gate like, hey, let me in, let me in, let me in. And she runs and says, you're not going to believe this, Peter. Peter's out there knocking the whole time. But she's just so elated at what God had done. And look at verse 15. But they said to her, you are beside yourself. They're right, aren't they? Yet she kept insisting that it was so. They really thought you must be blind. There was no way. Do you know they put two guards in and two guards outside of the cell? Do you know that? He was literally chained to two people inside. That's not Peter out there. And she says, Listen, it is. So they said it is his angel. I can't get into all that, but there was a lot of mysticism floating around in the Jewish culture in that day and time. I believe That was like a guardian angel, as it were, that could take the form of the individual. I'll leave that there, which wasn't true. It was just mysticism. Uh, verse sixteen. Now Peter continued knocking. Can you imagine Peter, man? He's out there just knocking away, trying to be as quiet as he can, but trying to get their attention. And uh, it, and when he had opened, when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. It was Peter. Verse seventeen. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent. Let me give you another sleep story to communicate what's happening here. Uh, Amanda was poorly last week, and um, she slept far more than she normally would, especially through the day. And uh, and, and one day in particular, the, bo- the boys were home, and um, she's, she's, she's sleeping, and I'm trying, it's middle of the day like, they're trying to have a good time, I'm trying to maintain her sleep because she needs it for her body to recover, and so I keep going downstairs and say, Doing this, don't do it. Keep it down, keep it down. And that's what Peter's doing here when he motions with his hands. He's trying to say, you're being too loud. I know you're excited, but keep your voices down. He declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, go tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. Now, what do we learn from the prayers of the church in verse 5. I want to back up to verse 5. I told you we we're going to park here. There are four main in the church from the prayers of the church. Number 1, what we learn is that prayer is an earnest effort. Prayer is an earnest effort. Notice constant prayer. Constant prayer was made for. Prayer. Now here's the thing. 1 Thessalonians 5 says, pray without ceasing. Is that literally possible? Can I spend every moment of my day praying 24 7? I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not, I'm not made for that. I can't do it. I can't pray 24 7. I can't do it. So, why does the Bible tell us to do something that we can't do? It doesn't tell us to do something that we can't do. Let me give you a quote from a guy I'm going to tell you about here in a minute. You're going to just make a guess who I'm going to talk about. Okay, Charles Spurgeon, a famous preacher from the past. I mention him a lot, and I'm sorry I mention him so much. But um, Spurgeon, um, he said this, The habit of prayer is good, but the spirit of prayer is best. So when God says pray without ceasing, He's not saying literally become a a, a monk, go into the hills and lock yourself away and pray and pray and pray. Isolate yourself from the world and just pray all day, every day. Well, that doesn't work because how can we reach a world we've never touched? That's not what he's talking about. If I'm praying 24-7, I'm not going to be witnessing. I'm not going to be studying. I'm not going to be doing this and that. He's saying the habit of prayer is good, but the spirit of prayer is best in principle. In other words, it's possible to stay in a spirit and attitude of prayer throughout the day without actually praying, knowing that everything that comes up throughout the day, you will not hesitate for a moment to say, God, take this. Help me to have a Christ-like spirit in this moment of conflict. God, meet me with safety when I'm on the road trip, whatever the case is. Throughout your day, as you're encountering everyday life, Maintaining an attitude of prayer. Now, this was put into action very quickly whenever Peter went into captivity, didn't he? They were, in a way, forced to do this. But it sets a precedent for us. It sets an example for us. This constant prayer. So prayer is an earnest effort. And we should never see it as less than an earnest effort. Sometimes it can become mechanical in our lives, can't it? Sometimes it can be something that we do just to tick a box. Like, oh, I've done my prayer for today. But prayer was always meant to be an earnest effort. But prayer is, number two, a directed effort. Notice, to God. Again, they didn't turn inward. They didn't look outward. They went upward. Why upward? Because only God can give us what we truly need. Did you know that prayer was never meant to be work? Prayer was always meant to be worship. Always. Why do we go to God with our prayers? Why do we take our petitions to Him? Why do we offer our praise to Him? Because God is who we could never be. God can give us what we can't give ourselves because we're needy people. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. We lack God supply. Prayer is an earnest effort. Prayer is a directed effort. Prayer is a specific effort. Notice, to God, for Him. I think we have too many generalized prayers, folks. Sorry, you you can correct me afterward if I'm wrong, but I don't see any generalized prayers answered in the Bible. The only generalized prayer that I see is the model prayer that Jesus gave us in in Matthew 7. That's, That's all I see. The Lord's prayer, this model prayer that He gave for us. Other than that, I don't see any generalized prayers answered in the Bible. God wants specifics. And they got very specific. Let me ask you this. How am I going to pray for my loved one or my friend who's not saved, who's never been forgiven of their sins? How am I going to pray for that person? I'm going to get specific. I'm going to pray that God would break the chains of Satan in their life. I'm going to pray what the words of Scripture tell me, that the blood of Christ would draw them to Himself. That the Holy Spirit would draw them. I'm going to pray that God would remove all obstructions from their path to God. That God would remove all obstacles from their sight of Him. I'm going to pray comprehensively for that person and pray that God would open their eyes and do what I can't do. We direct our prayers to God because He can give, only He can give, what we cannot give ourselves. But prayer should number four be a united effort now I'm not trying to minimize personal prayer time It's huge a huge part of Christian living but it was never meant to stop with the individual prayer was always meant to be something that people did individually but came together as a congregation what's what's the old adage many hands make what light work well that doesn't apply Completely to prayer, but the principle is the same. Imagine many people asking from God, pleading with God for what He wants to give us. Our prayers directed to Him in one unison choir of praise and petition to God, as it were, taking all of our burdens, heaping up all of our burdens into one massive pile, and taking them up through the Holy Spirit and leaving them at the throne of grace together powerful thought in it. Prayer is a united effort. Now, please allow me to share a, a Spurgeon story with you. Charles Spurgeon, if you're not familiar with me, is a 19th century uh, preacher who became known as the Prince of Preachers. But I'll be honest with you, I don't like the nickname and I don't think Spurgeon would have either. But um, he was very influential worldwide in the church during his day. People read his sermons all around the world Gospel tracts written by him were taken to people and, and countries and, and, and all this type of uh, things. So he was very, very influential. Many people also traveled um, to, to London to see the Metropolitan Tabernacle where he pastored and hoped to meet the man himself. And, and one group of preachers did exactly that. Upon their arrival, they were delighted to be greeted by Spurgeon himself. Um, so he, he ushered them into the sanctuary. Now, um, this, this sanctuary seated 5,000 people. And, and mind you, Spurgeon preached without amplification to that whole congregation, a congregation that heard him clearly and hung on every word that he spoke. Now, um, the young men were blown away, as you can imagine, at the size and beauty of this sanctuary. I've seen the part that remains to this day. Part of it was destroyed by a bomb uh, in, in World War II. But it's a it's beautiful Beautiful sanctuary. And uh, of course, they were just uh, uh, smitten by the look of things. Th- then Spurgeon asked them a curious question. Would you like to see the boiler room? Well, who wants to see a boiler room, right? The, the young man, you know, they, they, they didn't really respond. one came up on his offer. But still, he ushered them down into the basement. And there they found, they found 100 people praying. Spurgeon said, this is our boiler room. On multiple occasions, Spurgeon was asked, what's the secret to your ministry? He said, my people, pray for me. Now the congregation was taking the one that people called the Prince of Preachers to the real Prince. The Prince of Peace. The one who ever lives to make intercession for us. Jesus. And here's the point. You don't get the power of Spurgeon's preaching without the unified, earnest prayers of God's people. You you don't get a gospel explosion like uh, we saw without a dependence and submission on the sovereign Savior of the gospel. And the early church wouldn't have the powerful gospel explosion of Acts without a dependence and submission to the sovereign Savior of the gospel. You know what prayer does for us? I, what I think is one of the most greatest, most greatest, one of the greatest effects of prayer. Prayer forces us to depend on God. We like to depend on ourselves, don't we? We like to think that we can find a solution. There's nothing wrong with financial solutions to finance. I'm not trying to minimize that. But so often we think that we are, the, we think that our idea is the plan. We think that our ability is the ability that's going to get us through when God wants us to submit to Him, when God wants us to depend on Him, because only He can give us what we need to honor Him and to glorify Him. The early church wouldn't have had the powerful gospel explosion of Acts without a dependence and submission to the Sovereign Savior of the Gospel. My friends, you and I will never see Gospel fruit in our lives. We can witness, we can share our faith, but we'll never see Gospel fruit in our lives if we're not dependent on and submitted to the Sovereign Savior of the Gospel, the Lord of the harvest. I'm going to uh, leave you with a, a, a verse one that you guys read just earlier. Matthew 5, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We belong to the kingdom. And as children of the kingdom, we have a king. A sovereign king. We must not look inward or outward. Friends, listen to me. I want to encourage you this week, determine that you're going to look upward. When persecution comes, when trials come, when temptations come, when difficulties come, don't look inward. Don't look outward. Look upward. May God bless these thoughts to our hearts. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for being so good and so faithful and so kind in our lives. We need You so much. You're every good thing that we're not. Teach us to depend on You like we should depend on You. Help us to be patient and kind, loving, compassionate toward one another. As the Bible says, um, preferring one another in love. We can't do that without You. We can't pray faithfully without You. We can't read our Bibles without You. You helping us. And we, we can't see what you want us to see in the Bibles without you opening our eyes. None of that, God. So we need you. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know you as their personal Lord and Savior, that today might be the day of their salvation. Or at least they'd go away from this place, Lord, thinking about what Christ has done on the cross, becoming their substitute and rising from the dead to open the doors of heaven. We commit all these things to you because only you can give us what we need and only Your precious name is worthy of our praise. Amen.